It is fair to say that we witness today an ambivalence towards words. For some, words are mere air, immaterial and inconsequential. Others on the extreme opposite of the spectrum, such as Jacques Derrida and those of the movement of deconstructionism, view words almost as tyrannical, and therefore they set out to deconstruct or undo what they call the imperialism of the logos or the word. Whatever one's views are regarding words, it appears clear that we cannot merely discount words as inconsequential and of no value. In fact, we know as human beings the power of words. Who among us has never experienced the emotive power of poetic words, whether those that we read or hear in songs? History shows the power of words to compel nations to action. One merely thinks of Winston Churchill and his summon to Britain in the Second World War. And that speech that he gave, part of it, you know we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Words of great power that stirred a nation and called them to courage in the midst of war. Words are powerful. And sometimes they represent the ultimate reward of an entire life's work. Christopher Wren was a famous architect. Lived between 1631 and 1723. And Wren was tasked with the work of rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral, one of the landmarks in England. He spent 35 years rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral. And when Wren had finished the work, Queen Anne, the reigning monarch at the time, visited St. Paul's Cathedral. It was now just completed. And she looked at the work and she turned to Wren and she said, This is awful. Amusing, artificial. And Wren was delighted. He could not have received a greater compliment from his queen. Because as you see in 1710, awful meant awe-inspiring. And amusing meant amazing. And artificial meant artful. This was the ultimate praise for his life and his life's work. We know the power of words to inspire a child to greatness or the power of words to destroy a life. If human words are powerful and scripture does indicate because we read in the book of Proverbs that 
Life and death are in the power of the tongue or words. If human words are thus clearly powerful, what do we make of the word and the words of God? And scripture teaches us regarding the power of God's word. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 1 to 11, the writer has been in warning and encouraging a group of believers at the time who were in Rome, Jewish Christians, who were contemplating turning back from the Christian race because of the challenges that they were facing for their faith. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, he holds out this message of encouragement. He says, there is indeed a rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. And he describes this rest that God holds out to the people of God as a rest that is God's own rest, a rest which he entered into after creation, a rest which he will tell us is greater than the rest that Joshua gave to Israel in the land of Canaan, this rest, he tells us in verse 9, in chapter 4, verse 9, that this rest is the sabbatismus, word from Sabbath. It is the rest of the eternal Sabbath, the rest of heaven that God promises to his people. He says there remains a rest that is a heavenly sabbatismus, a heavenly rest. And it is because of this, because there is this rest that is available to God's people, that he warns them in verse 11 to be diligent to enter into God's rest, to take great pains that they enter at the end of the ages the rest of God. That they are not then to imitate the fatal error of Israel in their disobedience and in their unbelief that caused them in the wilderness to forfeit this heavenly eternal rest. But what he does then in the next two verses, verses 12 and 13, is to provide a reason, a rationale, why these believers and all of us must be diligent to enter God's rest. And he says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What he does is that he emphasizes the word of God and the power of God's word. The reason that he, you must therefore strive to enter God's rest, it is because God's word proved powerful to the generation of old, and that word is powerful in your day, in your age. I want us to look at then these two verses. I want us to consider first the powerful character of the word of God, Secondly, the penetrating activity of the Word of God, vis-a-vis, -vis, that is, in relation to the human heart, and then, finally, the perfect clarity of the God of the Word. So we're going to look then at the powerful character of the Word of God, the penetrating activity of the Word of God, and then the perfect clarity of the God of the Word. So first, the powerful character of God's Word in 12a, be diligent, he says, to enter God's rest. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
he lists three characteristics of the word of God. First, he says the word of God is living. This is the first term that appears in verse 12, living. Let us be clear that when he says the word of God is living, he is not now referring to Jesus Christ, who is God's word. But he's referring to God's revelation, God's communication to his people, God's word, that which was sounded to Israel of old, that which has been given to us in the scripture, is not a dead letter, but a living word. In fact, the writer is fond of this term living. He not only uses it to describe the word of God, but God himself. On three occasions, he describes God as living. In chapter 3, verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. In chapter 9, verse 14, he speaks on the relative, limited value of the external rituals of Israel in their worship and how these external rituals brought them some relief, some cleansing. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews and verse 14, he says, How much more then shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Later, in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, It is a fearful, that is a terrifying thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. And Scripture portrays God as living some 30 times. And very often, the description of God as living is used and given to us in contrast to idols that are dead. In fact, the very term Yahweh, the name for God in the Old Testament, prominent name for God in the Old Testament, the covenant name, comes from the root to be, to exist. God by nature is living. And because God is alive, the words that he speaks are impactful. They are living. In fact, Moses warned Israel of old. He says, for it is not a futile thing for you, that is referring to the word, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Deuteronomy 32 verse 47. The New Testament also views the word of God as living. And Peter writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And there he couples enduring with living. God's word, by which we have been regenerated, brought to life spiritually, is the living word because it imparts life and the enduring word. So he tells them, you must strive so that you enter God's rest. Because the word of God that was spoken of old to Israel was powerful. And that word that is spoken to us is not only living, it is powerful. That's the second description in the term, and at the heart of what he's saying. This term powerful comes from energeus. The root of which we get our English word, energy. The word of God then is full of energy. And we know that because the first chapter in the Bible demonstrates the energy and the power that is contained in God's word. When God created the heavens and the earth, it was by the davar of God, the word of God, that the heavens came into being. In fact, 
the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 points to the fact that it was God's powerful word that brought creation into being. By faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made with things which are visible. God's word brought creation into work. God's word is a creative word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And when you read Genesis 1, every time, every act of God comes into being by the creative word of God. So God's word is powerful because it is creative. It is powerful because it accomplishes all that God intends. None of God's word given, whether in threats or promises, fall to the ground and fail. All of God's words succeed. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 55 points to the word of God and its capacity to fulfill the will of God. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. God's word always accomplishes God's will. Because God's word is endued with the divine power. It is creative power. It is creative energy. The third thing he says of God's word is that, that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the term sword is debated whether it refers to one of those long swords or to a dagger. It could refer to both. But the idea of an, a sword that was sharpened on both edges was seen as the sharpest of swords. And the writer tells this generation, you need to strive to enter God's rest. Because God's word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And behind this image of the two-edged sword is Numbers chapter 14. Because it was there that Israel saw something of the power of the living nature and of the sharpness of God's word. You recall the story of the generation in the wilderness when God took them to Kadesh Bani and told them to enter the land. And the spies came back. And the ten negative spies came back with a bad message saying, we've seen giants in the land and if we go up there, they're going to destroy us. And the children of Israel refused to enter the land even though God had told them to go into the land because he was going to be with them. It was there that God spoke. And God gave Israel a powerful word. That is, he made an oath that they would never enter the land and receive his rest, but that they would all die, except Joshua and Caleb. They would all die in the wilderness. That's a word of power. But the children of Israel didn't believe that they were going to die in the wilderness. They had a sudden reversal, a sudden change of heart. They said, you know what, we can take the land. I know the giants over there, but we can take them. We can take the land. We can take these giants. Let's go up. Moses says, don't go up. Because if you do go up, you are going to fall to the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. But still, they brushed aside Moses. 
and they rushed into the land. And the outcome we know, they were soundly defeated. And God's word, God's word, God's oath that they will not possess the land, but that they would die in the wilderness, came through. You see, his word is sharper than any two-edged sword of the Amalekites or the Canaanites. We've noticed then rapidly something of the powerful character of the word of God. It is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. But verse 12b shifts attention to the penetrating activity of the word of God. For the writer continues to say God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, unable to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The reason God's word is sharper than the sharpest sword, it is because it does what human swords cannot do. Human swords are able to divide a body. But God's word is able to slice men and slice him so deeply it slices him down to his very personality. Even reaches to his spirit, his spiritual being. Notice that the word of God is personified for it performs the works and actions of humans. It pierces, it divides, it judges. And so the writer now focuses on the penetrating activity of the word of God. He says it divides soul and spirit and even joints and marrow. Before we try to amplify what it means that the word of God penetrates and divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, I think that a clarification is necessary at this point. There are those who hold that verse 12 teach us about the biblical perspective of man's constitution. In other words, that this text is teaching us that we are composed of body, material, substance, spirit, and soul, or body, soul, and spirit. That man comprises these three parts, body, soul, and spirit. One of the famous exponents of this view what is known as the trichotomist position, that we are composed of these three parts, was Watchman Nee. He's the one who wrote many books. Some of them are still present today in, in the English language, uh, like The Christian Man. Watchman Nee was a Chinese pastor, and by all accounts, a godly man of God. A man who died in prison in China for his faith. But I believe that Watchman Nee was wrong when he came to this verse. Because he argued that man consists of these three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And he made a distinction between the soul and the spirit. And he talked about the soul as that animal part of man. The part in which sin resides. A part that was irredeemable, that could not be saved. And spirit as the rational, spiritual part of us that has been saved and with which we dialogue and deal with God. 
And of course, his intention, of course, was for the sanctification of the believer, but it created great confusion. I believe it is worthwhile stating that when Scripture uses these terms, soul and spirit, that they are often, if you trace the usage in the Scriptures, they are often used interchangeably, soul and spirit. At times, the suke, the soul, is used to refer to the entirety of man's life. So that God breathed into man life, and we are told that man became a living soul, a living person. So soul can refer to the entire person. I think it is clear that Scripture, when it views man, it views him as a psychosomatic unity, that man is presented, yes, he possesses body and he possesses soul or spirit, but he is presented as a unity that I think must be clear. The intent of the passage then is not to suggest that the Word of God divides a part of man called the soul and divides it from a part of man called the spirit, any more than it means that the word of God literally divides the joints of our bodies from the marrow that is in our bones. What we must understand is that this language of the word of God penetrating man and dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is to be understood figuratively. He's piling up terms, soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, to indicate only one reality, that the Word of God is penetrating and that it enters into the inward part of man. So soul and spirit, joints and marrow, refer to man's inward nature, man's inward part, man's spiritual being. And he's saying that the Word of God is living and powerful and razor sharp. That it is able to penetrate the hidden recesses of our being. And you know that this is what has been stated and that's intent of the verse because verse 12c elaborates. So that the writer states that the Word of God not only divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is, he says, the word that is, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So that the word of God is invested with God's power and it lays bare the heart. Sword can only affect our bodies. But the sword of God, the word of God, goes much deeper, much more incisive. It exposes the content of our hearts. It shows the state of our hearts. In fact, he says that this word of God not only exposes the heart, but the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In other words, the word of God sheds light on the secret part of man, on our thoughts and desires and our attitudes and on our motives. It peels away the varnish. It tears down the facade of simulated righteousness and godliness. It makes the fineness of distinctions between our attitudes, our motives, our desires. 
It reveals the hidden unbelief and rebellion and hypocrisy of our hearts. That's how far God's word cuts. It cuts so it knows our very thoughts. It exposes them. It reveals who we truly are. But the term that is used here in verse 12, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, is a term, krinok, to judge. You see, God's word does not just lay bare our hearts, does not just reveal who we truly are in our thinking, but it judges. It judges the heart. One thinks of Nathan, who goes to David with the word of God and the story, you will remember this man had many sheep and his neighbor had one little lamb. And this rich man with the many sheep received a visitor. And instead of taking one of his sheep and slaying it and preparing a meal for his guests, he takes the poor man's little lamb. And when David heard that he was quite mad, he said, this man ought to die. And Nathan said to him, thou art the man. See, the word of God not only exposes our inward nature, does not show the honest or the state of our hearts, it says to us, thou art the man, thou art the woman. It convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of the coming judgment. We notice then something of the powerful nature or character of the word of God. We've seen the penetrating activity of the word of God in laying bare our souls and revealing our true selves before the eyes of God. But thirdly, we see the perfect clarity of the God of the word that penetrates us. Why is the word of God so powerful and penetrating, able to discern and to judge the thoughts and motives of our hearts? It is simply because God's word is bound up with God's person. God's word is bound up with God himself. You see, what the word says and what the word does, God says and does. More specifically then, the writer will show us that the word of God is able to do these things, to open us up and to reveal us, our motives and our thoughts. Because the God of the word knows our hearts perfectly. So verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. The reason we cannot hide from God's word, the reason God's word exposes us, it is because God himself sees deep within us. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What he does is he explains the power of the word to search us out and to find us out. Because God is omniscient. You see, he links God and his word. God knows all things. He describes God's omniscience, that is, God has perfect knowledge of all things. He describes it negatively. He says, but all things, first of all, he says that, that there is no creature that is hidden from the sight of God. His words can find us out because they are the words of God and God knows all things. There is no creature hidden from God. This notion that there is privacy in the world 
is a fiction. God sees us. No one can hide from God. It is possible for us to greet somebody, smile and even hug them, while our hearts are angry with them, while we hate them. While we, you know, we think, about, I just can't stand this person. And they will never know. They think that we are the most charming of persons. We're able to do that. We're all able to act. But where God is concerned, no one can hide from God. You see, for, for God sees in the darkness as he sees in the light. They're all alike to him. He puts God's omniscience positively when he says, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He makes it clear in the term naked that God's surveillance of our lives is absolutely exhaustive. No secret thought, no hidden motive or desire that is not known 100% completely and perfectly to God. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom must give account. This language, of course, is found in Psalm 33 and verses 13 to 15. The psalmist declares, The Lord looks from heaven and he sees the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. God sees us completely and perfectly. He sees us with perfect clarity. And that's why his word is able to open up our hearts and expose us. He uses the term open. So, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, when we see the word open, it does appear that it is merely strengthening the first word, naked. But this word, from trachelizomai, whose root, or which his root, its root is trachea, from which we get the English word trachea, referring to the throat. Trachelizomai was an interesting word. It wasn't a popular word. It was a word that was used of wrestling, in the field of wrestling. When two men are wrestling, one of them would grab the other by the throat and begin to squeeze. And as he squeezed the throat of the other, his opponent, that person became helpless and defenseless. And when the writer brings this term, trachelizomai, all things are naked and are open to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give account. He not only means that we are totally exposed to God, but that we are totally helpless and defenseless. It makes it then a folly to turn away from the word of God because if we wrestle with him, we shall never be able to win. We are naked before him and we are defenseless before him. And then he rounds off this paragraph that is from verses 1 to 13. He rounds off a paragraph with a statement of God who not only is omniscient, who sees us all, but that God is also judge. He taps into a familiar language of God as judge in the scriptures. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry spoke of the coming judgment more than he spoke of heaven itself. The Apostle Paul speaks of God as judge when he says in Romans 14, 10 to 12, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us shall give account of himself to God. He revisits the theme of God as judge in the writing to the, sec, to, to the believers in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so the writer of Hebrews says that all men will be brought face to face with the living God, stripped of all pretense and subterfuge, naked and defenseless before the full glare of God and his reality. And he will judge. Thus in summary, the warning of the passage is that believers are to be diligent to enter God's rest and they must shun the unbelief and disobedience of ancient Israel because God's word, the word of God that pronounces a curse and judges men, is strong and it is powerful and it will succeed in what God has intended it to do. I think it is beyond controversy that knowledge of God's word today stands at a low watermark. Many deny the existence of God in our culture. And for those who retain some modicum of belief in a transcendent being, they seem to view him in Epicurean terms. The Epicurean said, we are not sure if God exists. But if he does exist, he doesn't care about what we do, and we are not bothered by him. Our passage tells us, however, that God does care about how we live. And if we may borrow from the words of Francis Schaeffer, that God is there, and that God speaks, he is not silent. You and I must first of all take seriously the reality that God has spoken, that he has revealed in his word what we must know about him, what we must believe, and what we must do. God has spoken. He's there, and he's not silent. And the word we have received from him is first of all a word of promise, a word of grace. There is therefore now a rest for the people of God. He reminds us that there is an escape, an eternal deliverance from the weariness of our sins. There is a rest from the vanity of this life. There is a rest from the suffering of this world. There is a rest to be found in him. It's a word of promise to sinners, to those who are wearied and broken down, that there is rest in God. It's a word of promise that anyone who by faith clings to will find that they will enter into God's eternal rest. It is a word, however, 
of personal address. You need to know that when God's word confronts us, God himself confronts us. There is no divide or gap between God and his word. It is the word of God. And this is the personal word of address. It comes from a living and personal God to us. It comes to people in a specific place and in a specific milieu. And God's word speaks to you and to me today. It addresses us. It tells us what God requires of us. And it requires then that we recognize the importance of his speaking. This word is not only a word of promise and a word of personal address. This word is a word of power. It is the creative word. It is the word that exposes us. It is the word that shows us our true nature. And it is this word that will judge us. It is simply folly to reject God's word. Because we will stand before God and he will judge us. And he will speak a word. Depart from me, I never knew you. Or he will say, come now, enter into the door of the Lord. You and I are going to be judged by this word. And it means, therefore, that we cannot ignore it. And if we do so, we do to our own peril. It means, you know, first of all, that you must know the word. And by the way, ignorance is no excuse. You run a red light and, and tell the court, you know, I, I didn't know that red light means stopping. Of course, you found your license in a popcorn tin or something like that. You didn't read the book, didn't do the test. And so you're ignorant of the law. It won't save you. And ignorance of God's word will not save you. It has been given to you for you to know. So first of all, we must take seriously God's word. It will one day judge us. It will one day condemn those who are unbelieving and disobedient. And secondly, we must respond appropriately to the word of God. And what does that require apart from studying the word of God and knowing the word of God and putting ourselves under the word of God? We must submit to the authority of God's word. What is happening in our culture is that we feel that we can listen to every other voice. We can tell one another how to live. We can tell one another that a homosexual lifestyle is fine. We can tell one another that we can sleep together and sleep around and divorce our spouses. We can do all of that. But that's not God's word. What we must never do is to elevate the voice of human reason and the voice of our own private reason above the authoritative word of God. Rather, we must submit to the authority of God's word. We must put ourselves under God's authority. And one of the ways to do that is to do what the psalmist did in Psalm 139. He came before the Lord and he said, Search me and know me and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are to say to God before that great day of searching comes, before that great day of reckoning, you, Lord, with your words, search me.
And if you find in me anything that is displeasing, would you not cleanse me? Would you not purify me deep down with hyssop and make me clean? Would you not forgive my sins and then lead me in the way that leads to everlasting life? You must put yourself under the word of God, submit to the authority of God's word, and come with your life like an open book before God. And ask him to search you, to forgive you, and to cleanse you. If you are to respond appropriately to the word of God, not only must you submit to its authority, you must tremble at the word of God. Thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking now, in chapter 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, but to this one will I look, on him who is poor and contrite of heart, and he who trembles at my word. What's our problem? Our problem is that we often think of God's word as the words of men, empty and void, without power to perform. But God says, I look upon this person, this man who, who's contrite and humble, somebody who recognizes his limitation, who knows that he is a creature and I'm the creator. Somebody who knows that I'm sovereign and he's nothing, that I am God and he's merely like dust and ashes, like worms. And somebody who trembles, who trembles at the word of God, who fears to displease God and to break his word. I wonder, my dear friends, how do you stand with regards to the word of God? Are you seeking to obey it? Are you seeking to follow God's words? Do you tremble when God's word rebukes you about how you live? Or do you merely dismiss it as irrelevant? My dear friends, you must always know that God's word speaks to you and it demands that you tremble because it is the word of the Almighty God. God's word, word and his call to you demands not only that we tremble, but that we obey. Over and over again we find in these chapters, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The proper response to God's word is to obey it. I think of the Thessalonians in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says that he prays God for these Thessalonians. Because when the word of God came to them, they did not receive it as the words of men, but they received it as the word of God. And my dear friends, listen. This king of heaven, with whom, before whom, you and I will one day stand. He calls to you and he says, repent. He tells you to trust in Jesus Christ. He tells you to persist in the ways of the gospel. He calls you to live a holy life. It is your God, your almighty king who speaks. And you must obey. Because if you disobey him, you do so to your peril. But in closing, let me say this. Not only must you submit to his authority, tremble at his word, and obey his word, you are to hear him, and you are to hear and adhere to Christ. 
God's final revelation, going back to chapter one, has been given to us in Jesus Christ. God's final word to us is in Christ. And if you truly want to follow God and persist in the ways of God, you must hear Christ. He says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. Submit to him. Obey him. You are to obey the words of Christ that are given in the scriptures through the apostles. You are to submit to all that Christ demands. It is his words that are life-giving. He says in John chapter 6 that my words, they are spirit and they are life. That anyone who hears Christ and anyone who comes to him by faith, they are given eternal life. His words are those that quicken us. His words are those that sanctify us. His words are those that strengthen and encourage us. You must hear Christ. If you want to know where God has spoken, it is in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. And his words are not only life-giving, they are the words that will judge us. Listen to the words of our Lord. He who does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Make the word of Christ your trust. Look to Jesus Christ. Follow his words. Know that if you follow his words, he will speak words of comfort and joy to you. And his blood will continue speaking. His blood, the writer of Hebrews says, speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Because while Abel's blood was calling for justice, you who hear the voice of Christ, his blood will speak to you of mercy and forgiveness and grace. You must come to Christ. You must believe in him. You must obey him because his words are life-giving. His words are saving words. His words are our infallible guide. You see, John calls him the amen, the faithful and the true. He will never lead you astray. He will take you unerringly from this life to the next life to be with God. How do you stand under the word of God? Are you following it, obeying it? Following the Lord Jesus Christ in humility and in faith. May God help us that we will read scripture daily. Cut back on television and Facebook and all of these things that will not really profit us. And spend more time under God and under his word. Because as we do so, we shall be transformed from one degree of glory into another. The word of God will become like milk and honey in our bones. It will become our meat and our drink. It will become a fountain that is deep and always flowing. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sin, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its leaves in due season. It shall never wither. But you see, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. If you truly want to grow and mature, and to please God, you must surrender. May God work in your heart and life that today you will say, Lord, I surrender to you. I surrender my entire life to your word. And I will follow you as you reveal yourself in scripture and in Jesus Christ. Amen.